I'm Susan Shatter, the president of the Academy. If you haven't done so already, I hope you'll visit the museum upstairs and see the collection of drawings and watercolors from the Hood Museum on loan, and also sign up for our public, public programs. You can put down your email. That seems to be the best way to get things out these days. I'm welcoming you to the review panel tonight. This is our second season, and this is the second panel of the season. This is a, a co-sponsorship between the Academy and ArtCritical.com. I would like to acknowledge the support of the Daedalus Foundation, the Lehman Foundation, and the Department of Cultural Affairs, who have funded this series. And I would also like to acknowledge the support of our staff, Rebecca Allen, our Curator of Education, Jonah Ellis, our Building Manager, and our Director, Annette Blaugram. Now I'd like to introduce our moderator, David Cohn, art critic for the New York Sun, and founder of ArtCritical.com. David will introduce our guest panelists. Thank you very much, Susan, and to the National Academy and to all its wonderful, splendid officers for making this event possible. It uh, feels like one comes home once a month to the National Academy, which is where critical and engaged debate on contemporary art should be. My panel this evening consists from my far left, of Raphael Rubenstein, who is senior editor at Art in America, whose book of collected, uh, selected art writings, Polychrome Profusions, was published in 2004, and who has just finished editing an, an anthology on the state of art criticism entitled Critical Mess, which is uh, due from the hard press in January of next year. Lance S. Blund is my colleague on the New York Sun, where he is art critic, and he is uh, a very regular contributor to and a member of the editorial board of the British and uh, now international journal Modern Painters. And Deborah Garwood is an art critic and an artist as a photographer uh, working in photo-based media primarily, uh, work will be seen at the Hammonds Art Library at Southern Methodist University in Texas in the fall of 2006. Deborah is an art critic for Gay City News and is a contributing editor at artcritical.com, which, with the National Academy, is proud co-sponsor of the review panel. It, ladies and gentlemen, your panel. That's your cue to clap. Wonderful. Let me just remind you of the format or introduce it to you if you are new to our series. What we do is we're looking this evening at four exhibitions, which hopefully everyone in the audience or the majority of you have had a chance to go and study. Uh, the order in which we're going to review them are uh, painting first. Uh, we're looking at uh, Luke Toyman's show at David Werner and the Elizabeth Murray Retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art. We'll then take a short break uh, and give the audience a chance to let off some steam and probe us with some 
questions, and then we'll return to our critical discussion with a second PowerPoint presentation of some images from the uh, the other two ex the other two exhibitions that we're looking at, uh, Luis Hispert uh, and Jeffrey Reed's collaboration at um, Zach Foyer Gallery, and Jeremy Blake's uh, Sodium Fox at Feigen Contemporary, though not in that order, actually, in the other order. Okay, marvellous. Raphael, could you, could you give us a little bit of a description of Toyman's? What, what, sort, what sort of effects were we being treated to? What was, the, what was the impression one had upon entering the gallery? I think the impression you had on entering the gallery was not the same impression. You, the first impression was not changed over time. I think when I first came into the gallery, it almost seemed as if there were a haze in the space, as if you were looking at these paintings through some kind of thin fog. And the paintings, I think also, when you first see them, they seem, you know, rather that the palette is, is extremely tamped down, um, very plain. There's really no color in the, in the paintings at all. And they're kind of undifferentiated. But in a way, almost like a... James Terrell piece. The longer you're in, the longer you're in the gallery. The longer you're looking at the paintings, the, they they begin to differentiate themselves more, and, and the the color, the the differences in color, the difference begin to come out. But but the other thing that that changes is that at first I think his scenes seem extremely banal. You know, they seem to be these kind of casual snapshot like. Uh, images, except with one exception, the Condoleezza Rice painting, which I'm sure we can talk about. But, but that was the only one where you immediately recognize an image. The others seem to be a kind of um, vernacular snapshots. But, and, and you almost wonder at times why Toymans has chosen these particular subjects. Um, the titles don't really, in this case, the titles don't really give away very much. Um, and so, but what happens, I think, as you look at, look at them more, and also, you know, he's one of these artists, I think, where, and I think this is something that's worth debating, where, you know, reading the press release and sort of getting the backstory about the paintings can change your perception of the paintings, and, and I think that, I think there are questions about whether that's a, that's a you know, yes. the paintings need to be able to survive on their own. Do, I do think the, ultimately yes, these, these, that's, that's a very interesting uh, point we should be taking up. Lance, do you find, were you able to survive the claims of the press release that this work was a critique of America, Dogville style, or did you prefer to just stay with the uh, uh, foggy um, uh, opaqueness, opacity that um, uh, Raphael was intimating? I think that the paintings are utterly dead, and I think the ideas are pretty much utterly dead in the work. I found it... Um, drab, vacuous, dry, uh, bleached of life, um, no color, no sense of form, no relationship within the rectangle to anything. I felt that they were um, basically DOA, and I think, you know, I, I think he's basically a bullshit artist. <laughs> no, Lance, I'm going to have to take you to task here. I, I want you to be forthright and share your <laughs> honest I'm sorry, opinion, honest I always opinion. hold my cards very close oh, right. to oh, my okay. chest. Well, <laughs> nothing we can do about that. Sorry, okay. Uh, <laughs> no, no. Um, 
Deborah, a dead on arrival, would, would, would that actually jeopardize their, their meaning and their value? Are they, I mean, Lance has, shared, no, Lance has shared with us the sense that because of their formal uh, lack, of, lack of color, lack of life, lack of whatever, they're dead on arrival. Is it possible that the work takes some of its value from its seeming painterly lethargy? I think I think that it does take its value and cue from the uh, anemic quality of the palette. Um, that's very deliberate and intentional on his part. And um, it's also important, I think, to note that the work is all photo-based or even film-based. Um, Tweeman, pronounce it again? Tweeman, I think. Thanks. Uh, I'm sure a Belgian would shrivel up with disgust at that pronunciation, well, but for an American, enough. that'll do. It's yeah. good enough. Okay. Uh, Toymans has made his own films. He has worked with the camera. Uh, he less successfully with the, with still photography, but he has worked with film, and he's interested in montage as well. And I think the other point to make about the photo-based nature of the painting and the fact that it's a, a critique is that he's also very influenced by Gerhard Richter, another you know an earlier generation post-war painter who uh, whose photo-based work bothered everybody, uh, mm. just made everyone's mm. backs got everyone's back up in New York. And I I happen to think that it's a very interesting approach to. Uh, critique and to painting to drain the color. And let's also not forget that Agnes Martin, uh, some of her early paintings uh, are like Rothko's except seen by moonlight. So when the color is taken out of painting, uh, that it, that can be an interesting thing as well. Well, of course, the convention of taking the color out of painting, and I would seek the, 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 I seek, seek the approval of the author of polychrome profusions on this matter, but the, the history of monochrome and of... Uh, and of grisaille is one that reaches way back into right, but it's the annals of art history. I, I find my dilemma with Tymans is I, I feel a little something of, of, of what everyone's saying in that um, uh, on the one hand, um, they do seem to be nonchalant to the point of uh, uh, complete enervation. But on the other hand, I'm very intrigued by them and by the way in which um, uh, what, what I particularly like, perhaps, and this is something to maybe think is suspect in one's own response to a painting. But uh, as I'm always looking for connections, it, it happens to immediately remind me of three of my favorite painters of the turn of this century, the 20th century, uh, namely Edward Hopper, um, Morandi, and Walter Sickert. Now, those are three disparate painters, but I love them all to distraction. And there are elements of each of them, particularly this sort of sense of ennui, that I find in Tymans, and that then makes a kind of intellectual sense in relation to uh, some of his political issues and his his inheritance from somebody like uh, Gerhard Richter. So it, it has me, that's why I wasn't joking, it seemed to get a laugh from the crowd, but I wasn't joking when I said that maybe its actual value, its point, its meaning, its resonance comes, it is there not despite of, but because of, a kind of... Um, uh, bizarre, extreme, anti-painterly, anti-visual um, um, uh, approach. Well, I think that one of the reasons I think that he's very serious about painting, and I don't think I don't think the painting. I think that that there's a kind of camouflage going on, and I think that they're actually rather rich paintings if you spend time with them. And and I, but I think that he's you know I think it's he wants to. These paintings, I think, are very contemporary. They're dealing, in, as all of his work, he sort of deals with large subjects, and he deals with 
kind of charged contemporary issues and images. But he also is doing this in, you know, how, to me, the question, his question that he's dealing with is how do you deal with these images and incorporate them into oil painting? In, and why would you do such a thing, first of all? And, and how do you get away with it? How do you get away with making, um, making an, how do you get away with making a sort of serious uh, a luxury object? Um, I mean, because these are, they're very much, I think they're actually very rich and very substantial present paintings. But I think that he goes, there are certain strategies he seems to use. And, and one of them is this sort of, what, you know, what Lance is struck by, the sort of absence of, of, of compositional interest whatsoever. And of color. And of and color. Of thought but, and of idea well, and of ability and of talent see, I, and I, um, of anything yeah. that's of worth. I don't see, I mean, I do see. In the paintings. I see talent and I see ability and I see thought in them. But, but you know, but he, I think he, he, he purposely sabotages himself. One of the things he apparently does is he only spends, he never spends more than one day making a painting. And, you know, you would say, why would someone do such a thing? Why, would not, why wouldn't a painter want to spend, you know, as long as it would take six months working on something? And I think that it's part of the way he's negotiating with tradition and negotiating how to make these, how to, how to deal with, with, with images, which in some ways don't really belong in, you know, in, in, contem in, in, in the tradition of painting he's, he's trying to connect to. So... Well, there is, again, as, as with Grisaille, um, a la prima painting, doing it in one go, again, has a very uh, decent pedigree, certainly going back to the Barbizon school, and probably right. going I mean, back earlier, but it's a very much a perversion of a la prima to want to make um, sort of dull, washed-out paintings in one go. The whole point of a la prima is to avoid the paint surface becoming lethargic or the composition tired by forcing you to respond uh, spontaneously to the motif. Wouldn't you agree, Lance? It's, a, it's ironic to be a la prima and not want spontaneous or fresh paint. I didn't understand the question. Uh, well, the, my, the question is really a comment. It's, it's very perverse for somebody to, to want to paint in one go if the aim is not to appear fresh and spontaneous. Well, my feeling is that um, paintings should have lives of their own and that you shouldn't be setting limits on yourself as an artist. I mean, he can do whatever he wants, obviously. Um, but I, I know there's a whole history of, of tonal painting, the Lanham brothers, um, Grisaille painting, uh, Brock and Picasso both did um, spectacularly beautiful uh, tonal paintings during the Cubist years. I don't think, though, that um, any of that has anything whatever to do with this painter. Um, I don't think Morandi could be should be mentioned in the same breath with um, with him. And I did I did know you know there is there is one or two paintings there are one or two paintings that have some kind of um, quality of you know like like you can say oh maybe he's seen Morandi somewhere but I don't believe he really has ever seen a painting. Um, I feel like he's turned his back on painting, um, and I'm just so tired of artists like this who like Richter who are who are commenting on or subverting the nature of painting. You know, I just, I'd so much rather be talking about, for instance, Frangelico right now. But I think he's not, I think, I, I, I would disagree because I don't think he is subverting or, or kind of denigrating the art of painting. I think in some ways he's, he has a great faith in almost the magical properties of painting, 
you know, a lot of his images, he's done a lot of paintings deal, uh, dealing with the Holocaust, for example. Um, and it almost seems to me that he's trying to practice some sort of sympathetic magic by taking these images, which are sort of imbued with, 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 with evil and destruction, and, and incorporating them into, by making an object out of them, which is not, you know, is not celebratory, and, and you obviously wouldn't want to make a sort of virtuosic painting out of subject, subject matter like that. Oh. But, but it's, it's... Well, it, why not? If you make virtuosic painting out of the crucifixion of Christ, which people have done for six so, centuries or more. That's, right, I mean, to use that as a, a, you know, my subject is banal, so I'll make banal art, or I don't know. Deborah, do you, do you feel that he's somebody who's offering some kind of critique of painting, uh, like Gerhard Richter, or do you think that he, as a younger artist, he's really negotiating on his own terms a way to reinvigorate painting? I think he's terribly involved in painting. I agree with Raphael that um, there's great, ple well, he didn't exactly say this, but, you know, I see great pleasure in the painting when you stand there and spend time with it. Uh, I agree that there's really, a, you see a lot of colors. Uh, once you get used to the idea that it's going to be a very reduced kind of color experience, there's a tremendous amount of color that, that is there. You see passages that are kind of scraped out uh, or scraped off, but you also see passages that are very richly, I mean, almost, um, you know, use one, using one's fingers uh, in the paint to move it touch. around. Yeah, a feathery touch. And uh, that's a very sensual uh, relationship with the canvas and with the painting, I think, and also um, a kind of making contact with the subject matter, you know, especially when it's uh, a, a loaded, difficult subject matter which, like Which I think Holocaust. we need to talk about, too. We do, right? yes. I, I mean, Lance, you say this. Too much about the Lance, but, you feel there's, this, no, there's no intrinsic interest in the I feel like you only can get to the subject through the form. And I don't think you can divorce the two. So whatever he says he's doing, he can say it, but, you know, I don't, All right, well, let I don't me ask you get it through the I, I ask you very specifically, then, a question. How, what do you think is going on I mean, I, can you try to explain what you think might have been trying, he might have been trying to intend with um, uh, the painting of Condoleezza Rice, Secretary of State, it's called, um, about the, can you tell us something about the, the cropping of that image or the, uh, where the source might have been, the sensation of a relationship between the, the painted image and the source? Uh, there's... I have no interest in that painting whatsoever. Um, it looks like it's obviously taken from a photograph from the newspaper, and it looks like that kind of bullshit assignment that often high school students have to go through where you blow it up, and actually badly, I think, um, is what he did, was to crop it. And, uh, you know, I, I just, so what? Condoleezza Rice, I, no, I just, nothing, no, nothing, I'm sorry. To me, it actually recalled a painting of um, R.B. Kitai, who I'm a great admirer of and seemed also to have some relationship to this artist. That very sexy, subversive little portrait he did of Unity Mitford in the early 60s, which is, again, interestingly, in Grisai and based on a photograph, and has this kind of... Um, um, it kind of teases us because it's saying, sexy woman, sexy girl, follower of Hitler, or whatever. Now, obviously, um, we're not going to make uh, sexist or... Uh, uh, Politically incorrect comments about the Secretary of State, but there's something to me of, of a, some sort of frisson, I think, going on at least in his mind, if not in my own sensation of looking at that image. I mean, wh why would well, why would a why would a presumably left of centre a Belgian artist offering a critique of contemporary America um, paint Condoleezza Rice in that way? What's he really getting across with that painting? 
I mean, he doesn't. He doesn't give us clues. He doesn't give us obvious clues about what he thinks about Condoleezza Rice. So I know, sort of. Yeah. I don't think. I mean, I think that mm -hmm. it's a very neutral painting. He does quote some Belgian official who said she's uh, uh, strong, not unsexy, and that was not, the starting. Not unpretty. Um, not unpretty. Strong, not unpretty. Thank you. And that was the starting point of that portrait. Now. Um, you, uh, I agree with Lance, we should be looking at the image, not reading the press release, but nonetheless, what, what, what is he trying to convey? Is it just a sense of blah, here's a, here's a personality, like, is it, is, is it closer to um, uh, Andy Warhol's Mao, or to uh, the Kitai painting I mentioned, or to, um, say, one of the portraits of an encyclopedia by Gerhard Richter? Where, what, never mind what specifically he's saying about Condoleezza Rice, I want to know, kind of icon iconologically, where where this image might be sort of coming from. Where does well, it belong? Another thing that I thought about <clears throat> a reference, maybe not a reference, but um, Leon Golub in the 1970s yes. made a series of, John of portraits of um, uh, important political Nelson figures. Rockefeller. Yeah, Rockefeller, yes. but you know he did like 30 or 40 international political figures. Very small mm. paintings, very kind of nondescript and. Yes. Um, which kind of actually reconnected him with and led into his his better known figurative paintings. But I don't know. It seems like it's a one thing. It's a it's a portrait of power, but it's a portrait of power where the the power is you know it's deceptive. It's a very small painting. It's a painting. There is she. It's it's a woman. She is wearing. She has an earring. We can see in the in there's you know these are. It's not your typical um, depiction of. Sort of the you know the it's naked power, power of, mm -hmm. uh, of, uh, of political might and of, of military force, and I think that, but but I think I don't know I could feel it in that painting, and and I think in other paintings in the show there was this painting which we saw in the image of um, a ballroom, and this sort of mm. large, uh, empty space, and in the background there's this um, you can't really tell what's going on, but it seems to be sort of palm trees which might be decorations in this ballroom and and the kind of smoky almost which seemed to me almost like a war scene it's almost as if this in the background through the windows of this ballroom we're looking out on the war in Iraq I mean quite and, apart from your very strongly negative feelings about the work Lance don't, don't you feel that they do in part strike quite a strong mood that there is a, a melancholy that comes across an nothing, ennui nothing no I think that what they what they say to me is um, kind of I don't give a damn about art, and um, I kind of have, I just, I don't know, that, that to me is, um, I mean, if you want to talk about a powerful portrait, you know, let's uh, talk about Rembrandt, um, or, you know, so many other great portraits, or a portrait by Balthus, or, I mean, Anybody which there's so much generation? more going on, I feel like his work, his work can all be reduced, it's like putting all of art into a funnel, and then it comes down to one little fart at the very end, and it means, it's just, it's just like the, yeah, there are all these ideas around it, and they're jug, you know being juggled around it. But I really feel like um, it's you know if you want to know what I think it's about, I think it's about money. I think it's about people not caring. Um, I think it's about the gallery not really caring for painting. I think it's the about people like Richter who don't give a damn about art, who are being put on these pedestals as if they're actually commenting upon painting. They're doing something with it. I really don't feel anything from it. I mean. I just, I, he may have a lot of ideas, and um, I've read the press releases, and I've read the, you know, the 
hyperbole around the paintings. But I do think it's a lot of, I mean, yeah, to me it's just Emperor new, Emperor's New Clothes. Um, it's just another, you know, it's, it's like Eric Fischel, it's like uh, John Curran, it's just, it's like Garrett Richter, it's, you know, just bad painting, I, period. I would say, I mean, I think that to me there's a difference between, in strategies between Fischel, who I think is, who I, I mean, I don't get very much from Fischel's paintings, and I think one of the problems I find with Fischl is he tr he's trying to be a sort of virtuoso. Yes. He's trying to be kind of the Manet of his, of his era, and he just doesn't have the chops to do it. And I think in some ways that um, uh, Toyman's uh, choice not to try to make those kind of over-the-top uh, virtuosic paintings is, is, a, is maybe he's speaking to his own limitations, their own artistic limitations, but I think it also has something to do with the world that we live in. And, and, and the kind of how we see images and how we think of painting. Well, and I, I don't, I, to me, that's, that, that in a way, I mean, yeah, Rembrandt is certainly a greater painter than, than Toyman's, but... But, yeah. but, 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 if, if, but Toyman's knows that. I would hate to see... <laughs> doesn't he? I, I mean, Toyman's... I would hate to see Rembrandt's portrait of, of Condoleezza Rice. <laughs> 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 That's a funny thought. I'd like to jump. I'd like it. to I'll weigh in it. on uh, the Condoleezza Rice, the Condoleezza Rice painting. First of all, it is the smallest painting in the entire exhibition. It's a radically cropped view of her face, and uh, to me, if uh, if there's another painting or portrait that comes to mind that has the same sort of feeling, it would be Edvard Munch's The Scream. I think this is a painting of abject fear. I think this is absolutely, I think this is just terrifying. Who has the fear? You, uh, Rice, or Toymans? <laughs> Toymans, Toymans. Uh -huh. I think, and I also think that the tradition of uh, political critique and art is a very European tradition, and I see him very strongly in that, uh, just because you don't see overt political commentary in uh, Manet's painting or Jericho, Raft of the Medusa, doesn't mean it isn't there. So this is a very Europe, it's a particularly European thing to have painting and critique in the same, you know, in very much uh, the same content and, and form. I just feel like he's he's not embracing the language of painting at all. I think he's uh, I think he's aware of his position at the in this moment in history uh, as being. I, look, everyone on this panel knows people who are painting today, who are wonderful, great painters, and who just do their own thing, and that's lovely. But the, the truth is that if you are um, wanting to make really strong, serious art, and you come out of a kind of um, European intellectual tradition that, that um, Toymans appears to come out of, um, there's, a, there's a question mark about painting, above painting. And but I don't have a question mark about it. Well, you don't, and when it's done beautifully, I don't, but I understand and respect the generation, particularly those who have come out of film, who stopped painting for some period of time, I, I understand and, and find refreshing and invigorating their need to interrogate the medium and 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 play with re-entry. Anyhow, uh, no, sorry, go and see the show. It's still on at uh, the David's Werner Gallery. We're going to turn our attention now to the Museum of Modern Art show of um, uh, uh, Elizabeth Murray. Robert Storr uh, says in the catalogue, um, after some discussion on the, the issue of what's the definition of mainstream, he says that um, for some moments in her career, Elizabeth Murray has been mainstream, but by and large she's charted her own course. Um, is, that, is that a fair assessment of, of, of her career from the point of view of what we see on the walls, uh, Lance? Um, 
I don't really think of her as a very original artist, if that's the question. Um, I see her as kind of, a, I mean, charting her own course in terms of bringing in elements of one thing or another, uh, surrealism at one point, or um, action painting, um, pop art, Keith Haring, um, Stella, a number of different things pulled together. Um, but I, it, as far as I'm concerned, they kind of, I guess she's charting her own course, but it's a soup that doesn't really quite come together for me. Uh, there's a lot of things thrown into it that, uh, um, anyway, that's my experience. Okay, so, so um, cutting to the chase with a, a verdict, but I, I wonder um, if, yeah, uh, let, let me ask the same question to Raphael. Do you, do you feel this is a woman who's um, been in there with the mainstream for most of her career, or do you get the sense of a, a rugged individualist um, uh, courting disfavor with, with her idiosyncrasies? Well, I'm sensitive to the argument that um, she was important in opening up painting in the 70s, that there prescient things in her work, the using cartooning, kind of combining cartooning and abstraction, um, and, and just working with sort of going back and forth between figuration and abstraction, between painting and sculpture. Um, I think what, and I think, you know, it's interesting when you see, you know, this is an artist whose work, I've seen some of her work, I've seen some shows, I've missed other shows, but to be able to see all of it, not all of it, but to be able to sort of trace a career and, and, and it does it's an occasion to really think about you know where does this artist stand in history and what is her achievement really um, at least as far as we can say now and I don't know I thought that one of the things I liked about the show the things I didn't like about the show but one is that how it began in the first few galleries there were these very early works that she'd done in the 60s um, uh, before she came to New York and, and early 70s, where you see an artist sort of searching and trying to figure out what she's going to do and making mistakes. And some of the work was actually, you know, really interesting. Some of it seemed sort of to go nowhere. And there's, there was a sense of drama that... Um, and then the drama, and then finally, after, you know, I think what happens in a lot of these shows of living... retrospectives of living artists, they start with their... You know, they don't show you what they did in Iowa. They just say, start with my first Castelli show. Start yes. with the canonical work. And, and this had pre-canonical, this had her... Jennifer Bartlett's collection of a very, uh, almost very 50s of feelings of uh, uh, ochres and earthy browns of coffee cup on a mug on a yeah. table. Um, it's, it's, um, and, that, and that takes, you know, it, it becomes interesting because you know what's going to happen. But isn't it interesting? It precisely, but, isn't it? Doesn't as, it look like it actually... Uh, has a DNA of virtually everything that follows. And, as, and I'd ask Deborah if she would agree that um, there's always something of a, a little bit of a... Despite, despite their um, a boldness and bravura, uh, wouldn't you say that there's always some uh, kind of reticence or searching quality in, 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 a, in a work by Elizabeth Murray? Hmm. Well, by reticence and searching, I think you might be alluding to uh, the feeling of an undercurrent of anxiety that permeates the work. Um, a kind of domestic anxiety, a sense of un a sense of unrest that comes through the very uh, contorted canvases. Um, my feeling is that with Elizabeth Murray, you actually get everything that Clement Greenberg abhorred. 
You get theatricality, you get narrative, you get, um, you know, kitsch, you get uncomfortable mixtures of abstraction and representation, which is everything that he hated. And I think that um, as a female artist coming up in the 1970s, she did have to find her own place, and yet, you know, who would not want to... Uh, you know, be part of the legacy of Cubism and, and surrealism. So I think that um, she really struggled to find a place as a woman. I think she was asking, you know, whether this is really the relevant question or not. How do women paint? How do I paint? How do how do I relate to this tradition of painting, which is which was still very male dominated in her time in the 1970s? Hardly any female artists in museums, etc. Um, so she really had a lot of groundbreaking to do, and I think that contorting the canvas was her way of kind of announcing, this is different, the painting is going to have to go around me. Ah. Do you think to some extent that she was um, subverting a Greenbergian canon uh, programmatically, I mean intentionally, uh, or do you think that that just, just came out as being part of her woman finding her own voice thing? Uh, I, I think that's hard to say. I think she might, she must have been aware of it. She's very, you know, she sure. taught and she certainly knew. I mean, how do you avoid, there's no way to avoid Clement Greenberg at all. Uh, but whether she consciously set out to do that, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't think so. She seems a very intuitive painter to me, a very intuitive worker. And in fact, she, you know, when uh, the, in, in terms of printmaking, she did not want to do printmaking because she was afraid that the, technical, the, the technical aspects of it would um, somehow hamper her creativity. Mm -hmm. So that also tells me that she's an intuitive painter. Yes, the intuitiveness is what really, really struck me because I've, I've seen the odd Murray on its own. I've seen work to be produced. I never liked her at all, and I went with great reservations about how I was going to respond to the show. And I can't say I was blinded on the road to Damascus, but I did come away with a very strongly positive feeling, mostly because of the, uh, the beautiful way in which the show was installed and really made sense of her uh, sense of development, but uh, largely also because of the um, just the overwhelming sense of uh, an almost uh, uh, a charismatic uh, intensity of, of, of wanting to follow through on very specific personal uh, uh, visions. Uh, and so I came away with a very deep respect. What most intrigues me about the work, and has been touched on already in this uh, sort of dichotomy between uh, having a strong statement of what you want and, and having this kind of exploratory, looking for it kind of attitude, is that it's, it's very, very weird to me and it, 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 that you have these um, works which must have required considerable pre-planning to get to their uh, sculptural shaped canvas status, and yet the um, actual surface activity uh, is much more suggestive of a kind of um, abex attitude of, of, of finding the image within the process of making. And that seems to me, uh, and that really energizes and at the same time makes very complex the whole experience of looking at Elizabeth Murray's work. You've got this, um, you, you'd think that she'd be as um, canny about what she's after as, say, uh, Ellsworth Kelly in making a shaped canvas or indeed um, Frank Stella in making a sort of uh, uh, multi shaped uh, uh, thing. And yet, what we get on the surface is this, is this very um, uh, evolving kind of image. I felt, though, in some of the paintings um, that the, these sort of shaped objects, like canvases, they, they weren't evolving enough. I felt, I think that, I think you touched on something, it is a limitation. You know, when you, when you had uh, someone fabricate this shape, 
which is you know with a pre precise represents something in the world, and then you you don't you know the painter I think is kind of limited one by this pre-existing shape that you can't you know I think when you're painting with a conventional um, rectangular canvas, flat rectangular canvas, and and you are working and you find the painter finds something that's not working, it's it's fairly easy. Um, to 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 scrape it down to get rid of it and and start with something else and I think when you're working with the kind of format that that Elizabeth Murray has you're really sort of once you've you've kind of committed yourself from the beginning you've committed yourself to, to certain restrictions and I think that I felt some of the work I think that I felt like her in terms of the formal issues and the shapes the relationship among the in the shapes within one piece could have been could be pushed further, and I felt that 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 her her working with this very um, uh, it's something that you see also in Stella in, in Stella's work too, because I think that you know he has to when he's painting with one of his sort of reliefs with all these sort of attachments to it, he has to stay within these very kind of eccentric narrow shapes that, with his brush and can't. I mean, maybe it's easier for him to throw things out and put something else in, which I think she starts to do much more, she has a lot more freedom and gets over this problem in the most recent work, which is which where it, it isn't all so prearranged. And um, I also thought I had trouble with the scale of some of the paintings, that the, given that the subject matter is, um, there's still lifes, a lot of them are still lifes, objects, blown up to really large scale, and it seemed to me there was almost a kind of um, uh, disconnect between the subject matter and the scale of the paintings, and I wondered whether, like, and, and also I felt very sensitive, sen very aware of the amount, the immense amount of work that went into these mm. paintings, and sometimes that came across as sort of heavy, uh, overworked, and uh -huh. you know, like the absolute opposite of Richard Tuttle, for instance, who right. can make a yes. painting with a, you know, very yes, very no little um, uh, sweat, and these are very so the. That was one of the... Sweaty is the word I was after. Yeah. Uh, actually, you know... Uh, May I say something? Yeah, I would like to... I, I, I very much agree with what Raphael's saying. I think that um, there's a sense for me in the entire, the entire body of work that um, even from the Agnes Martin-derived earlier stuff or the supposed interest in Cubism and um, Cezanne, uh, which I think her work has nothing to do with Cubism or Cezanne, um, I think she kind of just missed the boat entirely there. I feel the, I feel as if the, the whole approach to art for her, and I can't speak for her, but this is what I get from the work, is that it's a kind of dodge around the, the just taking it and saying, you know what, I'm going to work with a rectangle. I'm going to see what I can do with a rectangle. And instead, she brings out an entire brass band. And um, it just, you know, there's just, there are monkeys flying around and um, trapeze artists, and it's like a whole circus going on around the very fact that when it all comes down to it, she can't, even when she has a shaped form, she can't get tension between one form and another. She doesn't find the forms. The forms are, she, she arranges them to be, she orchestrates them. She has them brought in, she has somebody make them, and then she, she embellishes them, and I feel like she might as well be painting her nails on the canvas, and I don't mean that as a sexist comment, I just mean I feel like she's applying makeup or, or beautifying them or making them ugly or putting marks on them, and they feel decorated as opposed to um, essential, found, 
experienced. Um, you know, they, they fall apart in the middle. She, she does like a kind of Leger-esque, and I, I apologize to Leger for saying that, but a kind of Leger-esque modeling across the form. And then you get to the middle of the form, and the form just goes, boom. You know, she, it's not even illustratively interesting for me um, in terms of um, formally holding the shapes that she's already has. Um, so, yeah, I think, all, I think all three gentlemen are having a trouble here with a disconnect between what's happening on the surface and the structure. Are you sensing that as well, Deborah? Uh, well, I think that's part of the point. I think that's part of the point. I think these are meant to disturb and unsettle. I think that um, they are about disequilibrium and about kind of bashing conventions around. Uh, it could be that she wanted people to not like them. I mean, I, there's really nothing. She's not trying to please here. There's very little that's, um, that's pleasing, especially um, in the very, very shaped canvases. And I, I think that in terms of, I mean, I was trying to put this together for myself too, in terms of the, you know, the domestic nightmare kind of thing. Another painter who worked with a women, a world of women, were other painters who worked with a world of uh, women and, and experienced the sort of claustrophobia that I think some of the shaped canvases depict are Degas and Bonnard and Vuillard. So for me, you know, a sense of claustrophobia and domestic disharmony uh, alludes to that tradition, at least in feeling, more than, you know, the formal tradition of uh, cubism and, and surrealism. So I think she's after a very different thing than um, what might be, you know, apparent in some ways. And also, I, I had another thought as I looked at these... Uh, you know, she's sort of trying to turn the canvas inside out almost, you know, turn the stretcher around. I mean, you can actually see the back of the stretcher in some of them. Well, those were, I thought, were the most interesting, some of the most interesting ones. There was one in particular from 88, mm. where it, it, the, the, the stretch of the support curves back so much you could actually see yes. these incredibly interesting-looking right. structures, and I kind of almost wish that, that she did that more often. More, yeah. And yeah. So, that, so that it wasn't just a kind of skin over over a structure, but that the structure became really more sculptural. And, um, <clears throat> but she's obviously didn't find that as interesting as, as kind of image, the image making. No, but they do allude to props and theater and stage flats. Definitely. And that's another thing that's very important in um, you know, the experience. 19th century painting in France in particular, Degas, Courbet, they were all just mad for theater and the stage. So that's another link to a tradition, you know, this working of the canvas, turning it around, another link to traditions that are not usually mentioned uh, when one just sticks with the subject matter, you know, of the work. There is also the sense of connecting to a pre-Renaissance um, Space, I concept. thought of that too. Well, there's yeah. a pre-Renaissance space, but I was actually going to say a pre-Renaissance um, notion when there was not a demarcation between the arts that we have between sculpture and painting and where... where where one had something that was a sculptural object that's painted, a painting that takes on a sculptural uh, shape, uh, this unwillingness to, to, to work within a, a conventional uh, canvas. Um, but but uh, to me, I, I'm just disturbed, as I think Raphael was, that, that in the process of painting that shaped canvas, she doesn't feel more often the need, although we're maybe projecting what we, you know, onto this, and maybe, maybe she did feel the need and did follow through on a need to to reshape the pre-shaped canvas? Do, do, do we get a sense of there being a genuine equal kind of to and fro between finding the image on the support and giving shape to the support? Or is it a question of um, her making do with this 
very elaborate, preconceived shape support, and then uh, focusing all of her um, exploration on the surface. Well, I think in the in the in the work from the last six or seven years in the last gallery, which is very different from yes. I mean, it's, it's as different from the main part of the show as the early work is, mm-hmm. and. Um, and I think that there, because she's working with um, with discrete, with uh, you know, uh, several dozen shaped canvases, all sort of, all arranged. I don't know. I mean, I don't know too much about her process, but it seems like she does have. She gives herself more freedom to um, to play around with what she's what she's painting on each individual. Uh, each individual shape in these agglomerations. Of, and ironically, the, and, even though they're more fragmented, they're fragmented within a rectangle, which is telling, perhaps, yes. Lance, would you agree with that? Yes. yes. Rectangle. Let's have, Deborah. Yeah, 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 I, ha- I wanted to throw something in about yeah. the most recent work, too, because um, I got into looking at the edges, you know, since the stretches were sort of turned around, I took particular notice of the edges in the new, newer work. Um, first of all, the black is gone, you know, the black color, and so they're, they're much brighter, they're more candy-colored, that's a big difference. But also, I think in terms of these little shapes, um, I, I could be wrong, but I think they might be a particle board material called MDF. Right. And if so, there's no wood grain. So you're beyond this limitation of, you know, um, you can make it any shape you want with a bandsaw. So I think that must have been very liberating for her as well. And she likes to paint the edges, you know, those yeah, cut, those stick out parts. Yeah, those kind of the way they sort of adhered and, and rubbed against each other, I thought. Yeah, was exactly. And, and also you get a surface that is very icing, very cake-like. And I, I, thought, yeah, it, I thought a little of Mexican Day of the Dead, like yes. uh, figurines and, and candies and pastries. Right. I'm, I'm having trouble working out what the mood of these is, because I, I, I felt it was a technical, formal thing that she's struggling to find the image within the shape. But Deborah's now suggesting to me um, that, that I actually read the rather, I mean, despite they're often very brash color, there's usually a rather uh, kind of uh, drained sense of color. They're not, uh, occasionally we get these uh, vibrancies, but more often as a result of that heavy working and pentimenti, um, uh, color and color harmony tends to go somewhat um, uh, by the board. But is that a technical thing or do you, or is it, should, should one be reading it as a kind of existential thing? Is it I mean, Lance or Raphael, did, did, did either of you feel that her colour or her, her what she was doing with colour really put you in a specific mood and did you felt that mood made sense of the work overall? For me, the she's as, um, kind of an un, as uninteresting as a colorist as Toyman's is. She's just kind of at the other extreme um, of the... I think her colour is kind of acidic and um, I think there's too much black and yellow in it, too much white... Um, I, for me, it, it's like a false kind of party atmosphere, um, an acidity that, that um, actually I feel kind of is nauseating. And in the last work, for me, um, the kind of good and plenty color, you know, the yellows, the, the, the milky colors, the bright yellows, I, for me still it didn't just doesn't come together. I don't know. You were asking, is it existential? Well, no. Whether 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 she's whether there's an intentional use of disturbing color relationships. Mm, I do think or... she's trying to jar us. Yeah. I, I yeah. mean, but I also think she's trying to do it with the shapes and with the kind of, as I was saying earlier, that kind of brass band. But but kind of not knowing when to stop 
It's like she's making um, uh, you know vegetable soup, and then she throws in a banana, and then a tomato, you know, then a, a, a I don't know, a monkey head, um, a <laughs> Yes. Um, it's it just like all these things that that don't add up for me, and and I feel like it's all about distraction from the um, the sense of committing to a kind of engagement with a personal vision, with a kind of personal engagement with um, the language of of making something, rather than I don't know dancing around it. I just I don't really ever feel that there's like she really had a has um, a, um, I don't know. A whole vision. Well, something, something, something important. Yes. Something important feels lacking. Um, and there seems to be a lot made around what's missing. Let's see what's, if the audience can fill us in on what's missing with Elizabeth Murray uh, or indeed Luke Toymans. Uh, yes, Susan, thank you. On the Luke Toymans portrait of Condi Rice. Yes. Uh, Condoleezza Rice is a black woman, and she's risen, risen above both her race and her gender to hang out with white men of power. So I think it's quite insightful that Toymans painted her in whiteface. I was wondering when oh, nobody like thought Jeff, of that. Like, like uh, Michael Jackson. Perhaps. <laughs> uh, I just, it just hit me. Nobody, it's some strange yeah, color we, blindness. We, we, the color blind panel missed that. Didn't, I didn't, didn't strike me as this white, white face. No, it was gray. Me, me neither. Yeah. No, gray. I didn't see it that way. Really, I sorry. I mean, he's painted lots of people of color. He's done a whole series on the Congo, and but he, he's, he's very much in love with the. The anemic Which photo bleached out uh, look. So, so I, you don't I, think I there's any read connection past that, there? But that's an interesting. No, that's something to think about. Definitely. Uh, but I'm sorry that none of us thought about it. But thank you for having us do so. Great. Uh, and, and, yeah. Uh, oh, yes. Gentleman Joe Fife, former panelist. Oops. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say something about the Condoleezza Rice portrait, too, which this is, you know, just now was the first time you brought up those um, paintings he did of the Congo. And, you know, it kind of sounded like a little bit there was an undertone of... Uh, well, what's Toyman's painting America for? And why is he painting Condoleezza Rice at all? And, you know, it seemed to me, especially when he did a lot of those paintings that had to do with, you know, Belgium's disgusting history in the Congo as a um, colonial power, you know, which was pretty close to pure evil, that, he, that I think that you were, it was really... It wasn't really a portrait of Condoleezza Rice the, as much as it was a portrait of a Belgian with that history looking at this incredibly powerful person you know, of African descent. It was like really the other side of the coin. So it kind of, you know, Toyman world is a little bit like Greenland, you know, uh, Graham Greenland, where there's things that happen there. And, that that are only that only happen in Toyman paintings. You know, it's be, you know that you begin to know the work well enough. So there's just there's just things that come in there, and it seems that Condoleezza Rice is kind of like in Toy, sort of made sense in Toyman land. Yes. Uh, anyone else want to share some thoughts on on Murray, uh, Elizabeth Murray, and and are we missing the point there in Elizabeth Murray? Uh, uh, yes. Some hands at the front. Uh, the lady in black. Wait for the mic. 
I think Elizabeth Murray um, was struggling with problems that painters struggled with at, at the time in the uh, late 60s or early 70s, the objectness of a painting and, and the illusion of a painting. And she um, you know, came up with this distortion of the uh, canvas and the, you know, the, the backing. And uh, it was quite amazing at the time, at least. I, I felt that she had really gotten somewhere, really pushed something. And uh, you know, I thought it was pretty fabulous then, but but she went up to the point of um, you know this drive in, uh, to the end of modernism, and now so much else has happened since then, and her work looks um, looks differently, and and seems to me to look somewhat lacking now. But I think in in 30 years it'll it'll you know it'll be seen differently. Uh, but um, now, at least when I look at it, I think of, you know, it never made this um, real step into sculpture. And um, I miss that, that it never became sculpture, that it, there's always, you know, it came up to this point um, of combining um, painting and, and, you know, going into space, but it, it didn't, yes. you know, keep going at that point. Right. And, um, I think definitely we, we were all toying with some, some comparisons with Frank Stella or Oswald Kelly, and that's certainly a path we could have taken. The lady in front here. Um. Well, I guess just for me, the um, thing that no one seems to be picking up on or talking about is the emotional content of Elizabeth Murray's work. Um, I, it seems to really have, you know, like her heart on her sleeve, that she's really um, laying bare her struggles, not, not only as a painter, but in, in life. You know, it just, you know, you look at them and it's almost, you, you feel like, oh my gosh. Um, and I thought that that was sort of, for me, a very powerful thing to see, this whole body of work just um, uh, kind of like courageously out there for everyone. Okay. Well, it's great to have that response. I, I some of us, thank you. Okay, um, this lady here. And if you wouldn't mind giving your name, if you'd like to, that's, that's a good thing. Oh. If you want to give your name, do it. If you don't, don't. Marsha Hafif. Um, I just wanted to point out that Elizabeth Murray studied in Chicago and that um, there was a long tradition of cartoon-like work in Chicago. And I think that this may have been quite a, a large influence on what she was doing. At the same time, I would like to say that I think she moved away from that. She was working in New York, different aspects of what she was attempting at that time have been brought up, but I feel that her images were very much becoming her own images and not not dependent on another kind of work. I, I would like to keep them in that frame uh, framework in a way, rather than connect them with Stella or that yes. they should become three-dimensional or sculpture mm. or so on. That's valid. I, I go with that. A sort of second cousin of Harry who... This <laughs> but it, it definitely, I, we, some of us have, here have mentioned the, the cartooning aspect, and we could have, I think, gone a, a lot further into that. It would have been And the comic, there's something comic, I think. There is something tragicomic about them, yes. Roadrunner, kind of. Yes. I just have one question about um, Toymans, directed at the gentleman who hates Toymans. Um, just, what do you think about his... You. <laughs> <laughs> no, you. His, I just find him powerful because of his quietness and his subtlety. What do you think about his quietness and his subtlety? I mean, 
Um, I don't. I, I think subtlety. I think uh, I would. I would. I see no subtlety or quietude in his work. Um, I. I think that. I think in painting, subtlety happens. Um, you know, say, in a Vermeer or in a Mondrian, when um, you know the shape is exactly the right amount in weight, color density, um, size, in relationship to everything else. And it's that kind of subtlety that um, excites me. In him, I think it's a very kind of false um, subtlety. It's a, I'm so fucking subtle, look. You know, it's like, it, it, it's so reduced. And I think reduction is not what makes subtlety. The fact that there's very few elements going on in the painting does not mean that it's poetry to me. To me, it's a kind of, I'm going to empty it out, empty it out, empty it out, empty it out. And um, it's, I think we've had a whole tradition of this going back to the ab abstract expressionists of emptying out painting, emptying it out, emptying out. And this is what we've gotten is, uh, is Toyman's. And, um, you know, what happens next? Um, I mean, we're even at a point now on this panel where we're discussing the idea that, honestly, um, you know, here we are discussing it. it. Is it okay to subvert painting and challenge painting rather than um, embrace painting. And um, I don't think of him, in, in, in my understanding of what painting is, he is he, he has nothing to do with painting. Um, so I think those of us that would call ourselves modernists have this basic sense that, that um, a living art form only renews itself through a kind of struggle. And that if you just uh, tap into what you really liked a lot about the past and try and do it again, that you may well produce some nice results, but you're not going to really... Uh, give new life to the tradition you're working within. And that's... Well, I think he's anti-tradition, and I think that he's smothering painting rather than engaging with it. Well, I'm um, on the fence. My yeah. friend Merlin James, uh, the painter and critic in Scotland, said to me in an email when we were talking about I said I was writing about Toymans and couldn't quite give my verdict yet. Uh, he said that at first he got excited, he thought it was the beginning of something new, but then he suspected that he was the end of something old. <laughs> um, let's yes, lady in the front here, and then I think uh, Rebecca, can you wait for the uh, mic? Yes, you. I don't know if it's clear enough in my head to make. I wish I could verbalize better, but I'll spill out what's okay. going on spill, inside. Spill me. away. I sense that the gentleman. Lance is this Lance one. Raphael Deborah, is David. unwilling to accept the fact that this man is painting in the colors that he chooses to paint in. And you seem to be very moralistic about the fact that he's not painting the way you would like him to paint. He's painting the way he would like to paint. Now, I view his pictures, and the first time I saw them, gee, I don't like all of them, but some of them I really like. Isn't that good enough? It pleases my eye, my sensibility, which I think is pretty good. Obviously, there's better, but it's not bad. And I don't think you're giving him any leeway there. For him, you, you, you don't seem to want to legitimize it, this at all. You think it's not really bad. Well, that's, that's, that's my... That's, it, it's a good thought to share with us, and I, if, if Lance doesn't mind, it could apply to any of us on, on any subject. I see plenty of other hands. Hold it, because we're going to have another discussion after our next two shows. Um, fabulous. Pull it off, Rebecca. 
So, from painting and sculptural painting to perhaps the painterly in the new media. Well, first we're going to look at the um, poet, filmmaker, painter, uh, Jeremy Blake at uh, Feigen Contemporary uh, with a new uh, exhibition focused around a, a DVD uh, entitled Sodium Fox. Uh, some of you heard me using some of his lines as um, a, a sound test uh, at the beginning of the evening. Uh, I deliberately skipped those which I found the most resonant and poignant, which I'll share with you now. But again, of course, that is to um, not to describe, but rather to, to interpret. But nonetheless, um, just to remind us perhaps of some of the poignant lines or potentially poignant lines in the, in the film... Um, uh, situations where the Bible counsels arrogance. Tonight, God has asked her to love me as a favor to him. Love is the 51st state. Where wayward yes-men go to be alone. The elderly make poor novelists was his unpopular maxim. And an image of uh, President Lincoln, his eyes becoming demonically green, uh, accompanies the words, he knew where the piano's asshole was. Okay, uh, perhaps in the course of our discussion of these two shows, um, remarkably similar in certain format terms, in that they both uh, they both focus on a moving picture, and they both have supporting materials, uh, and they both perhaps have some kind of uh, surreal quality and a strong narrative element. Uh, we'll we'll work out um, uh, whether we can use that as a way to bounce against that and, and get a sense of their difference. But I do want us to nonetheless focus on uh, and treat each uh, show individually. So let's, let's start with the Jeremy Blake. Uh, what did we think, panellists, about uh, Blake's handling of the, uh, the relationship between word and image? It seems to me that almost in the way that Murray was about uh, surface and structure, that this one, this, this work, like many of his, his films, is both its strength and its potential limitation has to do with a relationship of word and image. Deborah, would you well, share that view? Um, may, may I just ask one question before yes. we continue? We're, my understanding was that all the poetry was by Berman and that he didn't write that, he used that. Am I, yes, am I, I think that's correct right. David in Berman, assuming that? It was a okay. collaboration between... All right, so all the words were, were not his, he just used those. Right. Okay. And the music? The music was by Berman or by... I think some of it was, but some yeah. just samples from various... Okay, because I mean, he's a musician as well. David Berman yeah. is a poet right. and a, mus a reclusive right. musician. I, know, I don't know. Silver so this Jews. is much a collaboration in a way as Reed and uh, 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 Hispat. Well, I, I think that the, um, the word and image relationship was uh, a loose one. I think that basically Blake really stood out. I mean, you had to, you could understand the words if you tried, but I th felt they were much less important than uh, the images. And I saw it as a kind of visual poem, a sort of visual song. Um, and I, I thought the presence of the words was interesting, but not especially helpful. Uh, there's, there's really no story here, no plot, uh, kind of imagistic flowing in and out. But I, I came away thinking that um, Jeremy Blake is a kind of knight. And that's partly because I was reading some criticism by a 70s French film critic, and he mentioned that um, he mentioned that in France they see the Western, the Hollywood Western, as uh, 
you know, it's very emblematic of U.S. and U.S. movies in Hollywood, and that he, for him, it, it uh, reminded him of the medieval tradition of, of knights. So I thought that was, you know, a, a very interesting comparison and an interesting way to read the film as a sort of, you know, knight. He's on a quest for the unattainable woman. In this case, she happens to be a stripper. Um, so you get these visual clues and, and also a very strong Western theme in terms of the musical motifs as well as uh, the visuals, the kind of South, Southern California graphic sense taken to the nth degree with you know special effects and the computer and so forth and so on. I agree with you, Deborah, that there was something musical about it. It was also very poetic. It, it, it reminded me a lot of a John Ashbery poem. It had these kind of discontinuities that were very vivid, but a second later you're in a completely different space and it's not clear how they connect or whether they even should connect. And, and I thought that in the, the previous piece I'd seen by Jeremy Blake at the same gallery a couple of years ago, the was Clark, reason, uh, reading Aussie Clark, which was similar format, this computer animation related to painting about, you know, maybe about 10 or 15 minutes long. Uh, and, and in that, the, the text, the images, the text was from the diaries of the uh, 60s uh, British designer, fashion designer, Aussie Clark. I found this work much stronger visually, but also much stronger because the language was much more interesting. And there seemed to be more of a, a give and take between, between the images, between what Blake was doing in his computer animation and what David Berman's words were doing. And I thought that was, I, I think that language is not, you know, I think there's a lot of art that uses language and, and sort of appropriates language, written language, literature. But I see like the difference when, when an artist is really involved with, with a practicing poet and not just taking pre-existing language. I, th I found that maybe one of the most striking things about this piece, which had, I thought, a lot of other striking elements, too. So is this, is, uh, were these, do you think this was a, an equal, I mean, this is a technical question, not a critical one. Um, <clears throat> do we think that the, um, this, th did this, did the film emerge, did the text emerge with the film and a collaboration? Or uh, did the text pre-exist and is used as a soundtrack, as it were? Springboard he said, from what I understood, that he had taken fragments of poetry that Berman was using at the time and then based his film around that. So these were things that were not that hadn't come to fruition for him as, as poetry. Right. Um, I, 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 I love the film. I think he's pretty fantastic. I think he's a visual poet. Um, in movement, and I think he's a wonderful colorist, um, and I, he also does amazing things with, um, in this film particularly, with, um, you know, moving you from kind of one sensation to another, and in that, I really think he does kind of do a, a simultaneity in the, in, you know, in the, in the way that, for instance, the Delaunays did, um, in bringing, in layering colors and doing Rorschach tests and, and really pushing forms into different things. And, you know, there's one, po there's one point in the film, and I don't remember exactly where it was, but where he goes from, like, kind of a moon landing thing. There's a woman on the beach, and then suddenly you get this, like, sound, and it brought me immediately back to watching the moon landing on, um, on TV, and there's this flag, and then, and then, then you're on the sand, but it's, you're on the beach. And then it goes into this close encounters music or something of the third kind. And then he takes you from there into as if you're going across a radio dial into something that's like um, uh, 
you know, guitar, you know, uh, country guitar or something. Yeah. And, and, and I just kept feeling like he kept grounding us in places. Um, my, you know, in this wonderful kind of free fall. And it very much felt to me like the 70s that he was kind of doing it. And he talks about it as a, uh, an internal visual landscape that he's roaming through with, the, with Berman. And it really does feel like an internal kind of monologue. You're going from, you know, thoughts about sex to, to memories to, um, and he, he treats it as a kind of journey or quest, I think. I don't, I, I'm not sure that the language and the film really merged as well as, say, it did in his two last films, the Winchester series, the trilogy, or the, um, the reading Ozzie Clark. For me, it wasn't as, as full an, a collaboration. Um, I do think, though, in terms of the still images, that they don't work at all. Um, I think that they're... Uh, I think he only really works in tr- when he's moving things from transition to transition. I really think that's his great strength, yes. is when he, you know, he merges you, he ma- moves you from one place to another... And he keeps you moving. He has such a great sense of rhythm in film. I don't think he has any rhythm when it comes to the... Um, the, I, the, I the, totally agree with that. I, the, I feel that this is... The paintings, I think, are just ridiculous. So. It's, it's come to be a, a bit of a problem with uh, so many filmmakers and animators I admire or really, really like that when we have an exhibition of uh, Shirin Nashat or William Kentridge or, or Jeremy Blake, that it seems that these are like uh, posters in the foyer, the, the uh, still images. Yeah. Uh, Deborah, is that harsh? Well, they had a purpose in Blake's case. I agree with you, and I think that's especially true of the other show we're going to talk about. But mm-hmm. in Blake's case, it was interesting to see the sort of salon, the area where the, it was a salon style hanging. I think some of these were his childhood doodles. <laughs> and if you notice, he, they appeared in the film. You know, you had to really pay attention, but I found a couple. So that sort of tipped me off to this idea, like, oh, that's what they're doing here. He's kind of excavating his childhood. He's showing us how his whole life, you know, he wants to weave his whole life into um, the movie and and show that he's been an artist from birth almost. You know, I thought that was kind of sweet. And on the other hand, if you wanted to take be the devil's advocate or something, you could say, well, this is a person who is really mythologizing himself, really mythologizing yeah, I, the I, artist. I found that a little heavy-handed. I noticed those childhood drawings with his sign, Jeremy Blake, and I thought that, we, I mean, it, I, I didn't feel like that really added anything. In act, for me, it was distracting from, from what was interesting in the work. And I agree with everyone with the three of you that that for the most part the the works i mean you could walk right through the first gallery yes, and go directly this is what i suggest anyone does is just go directly to the main feature it seems to me that the yeah. film is the work of a master i think that ossie clark reading ossie clark was so far for me the masterpiece the the one also though the smaller one that you can see on that laptop or portable um, dvd player of the the house uh, it's the redoing of the three from the Winchester. The Winchester, that's the yeah. Winchester, right. That's the latest. I, um, but, yeah. Uh, I would stop short of saying he's a master. Um, I, I mean, I do think that he's as about as good as it gets uh, in well, many ways. that's a good ways. definition, working definition um, of no, a master. No, but I mean, I mean in terms of, of video art that I've seen. Um, but I, 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 think there is a, I think there is an immaturity in the work that you guys were kind of bringing up, or I mean, been talking about bringing the child stuff in. And I think sometimes it worked really, really beautifully, but other times there were... Well, I felt, you know, that that's, why, that's why I preferred reading Ossie Clark, because there I felt that the um, basic uh, junky puerility uh, made a particular kind of period sense. Whereas, uh, so, so there it was uh, Jeremy Blake taking us into 
the you know the the the, the mindset of Aussie Clark. There's that wonderful line of uh, you know I had a line of coke and that made me feel like a new man and that man wanted another line of coke and I thought well, okay yeah that's that's basically what, where we're, where we're at here uh, with Jeremy with with this with this latest film it seems that um, uh, it's it's not it's not Blake sort of sympathetically. Um, putting his hand around the shoulder of, of of that mindset, so much as sort of jumping into bed with it and saying, you know, this this is this is me, this is it, uh, sort of take it or leave it, and 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 so consequently, um, you know, it's it's this enveloping effect through through video. Um, it's it's. Um, I mean, I like the fact that it's not a heavy-handed narrative. Um, no, it's it's almost you know he. But it's a trip, isn't it? It is a trip. It's this ecstatic, you know, he, it's almost a saying, you know, since there's no ultimate meaning to be derived from contemporary life, from the society we live in, I'm going to give myself up to the sensations. Um, and, but at the same time, there's also this undercurrent that sort of seems to be about post-war America. There's a little snippet of an Ernest Tubb song about the soldiers coming back home after the war. And, um, but I think what, you know, I think, you know, I think one of the things that is successful, it's this sort of new hybrid of painting and video and using computer yes. technology. And, the painterly and video, I call it. Painterly yes. video. It's very much, a lot of it makes me think of Albert Olin paintings. And, but I also like that you can come in at any time and not, you don't have to like be there at the beginning. It's a loop and you sort of pick it up. You know, you come at the beginning of the loop, the middle of the loop, the end of the loop. It really doesn't matter. And I think that that's one of the problems I have in a lot of videos in museums or galleries is that you have to decide, okay, am I going to stay through to the end of the video or not? And well, that's fascinating because I'm being so anal, wanted to be sure I was doing my job properly and did at least once see it from the beginning to the end. So it, it meant that I watched it through many times. And, and I still don't know, technically, legally, whether... The, the quote, I am definitely the kind of man who knows when it's over, is in fact the opening or the closing of the uh, sequence. It's either the opening or the closing, and it rather brilliantly open, works as both, making the, making the film a kind of Euroboros, a snail swallowing its own tail. I had the feeling that was the beginning, because the, the, the ending where there's a kind of that sea scene and then a star well, rainbow yes, well, effect. It feels like the end, and then it's yeah. like saying, and then saying the end is he says that it's it, over. It, it, I think he said that the be- end was the flag with the skull on it, and the beginning oh. is the skull. Um, in fact, he has a, a four-page long artist statement about it. I think he's reading a lot more into the work than is there, frankly. Right. Um, and and it, it's, I mean, certainly there are things that come through, but um, I think there is a little bit of over-analysis, over-deconstructing his own work, as if he's critiquing it in a way. But, but it's but certainly it's worth the trip. Um, okay. But, I mean, go ahead. One Michelin stars, <laughs> one Michelin worth a detour. One, uh, yes, he's a master, and um, a couple of two stars, I guess. But, uh, but we're not here to give stars. We're here to... Because I mean, we don't need to tell you whether you should go and see it or not, because uh, you all, you've all seen it anyway. Let's then press on to our next show and then see if we want to round up with uh, uh, something that ties together some some themes that unite the two. Um, uh, I wonder if any of us are really going to conclude that um, uh, either Gisper on his own or with the uh, collaboration of Reed as a master, but I'd be delighted to be put in my place on that one. Uh, any volunteers for... Um, the case for their mastery. All right. 
Um, I think Raphael, I think it's you that first tipped me off about this show, not to put you on the spot by saying by <coughs> saying I, that. Yeah, but, I did. I did. Uh, share share with us um, your verdict on, on on this collaboration. Again, I think it's the DVD that's the main event, isn't it? It it is the main event, though. Um, you know, the first thing you see when the first room is these four or five large um, color photographs in the genre that we're all very familiar with, a sort of staged photograph in the kind of related, descended from the work of Jeff Wall, um, uh, Gregory Crutzen. Um, and I, to me, that seems like that sort of, for me, the show started off on a bad note because that seemed very, very familiar. And I don't really find most recent work in that genre interesting. And this just really didn't seem to add very much to it. But, the, but as you say, the main event is, is this film video. And which has very high production values. That's the first thing yeah. you notice about the it. The credits stay longer than the film. <laughs> they practically do, and and that you know that's impressive in itself. Um, it is, uh, you know, but I I found that um, in contrast to uh, Jeremy Blake, who really seems to have, you know, he's he's trying to do something new. He's trying to kind of work with a, a kind of new um, format and almost a new medium. This seems to be taking a medium which exists, film, mm. you know, Hollywood film for the most part, or MTV at least. Yes. MTV to and but but making a, you know, making a very small version of it, and I found that um, I don't know. I found a lot of the imagery seemed to be while it was very impressive in one level, it seemed to be sort of exotic just for the sake of exoticism, and and there I really and it seemed it reminded me too much of other. It reminded me of. I don't know, a little Quentin Tarantino. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it reminded me also there are sort of artists who, there's a genre, like a lot of the film takes place in the Whitney Museum. Mm -hmm. And there are artists who have made, I think, more interesting sure. uh, examples of, of well, films. Barney and the Guggenheim. Perhaps. Well, I thought of Matthew Barney and the Guggenheim. I also thought of the work of Holly Zausner, who's made mm. films in the Neue National Gallery in Berlin. And this didn't really seem, to me, the, the, the museum and the works were, just seemed like props. I felt that um, it really had no, you know, it was almost like a kind of fashion shoot. You know, like if they had done the fashion shoot in the Whitney, they might have come up with something probably yes. more interesting than. Um, Deborah, did you find was. anything redeeming about the work? Well, I, I thought, um, I, again, I saw it in terms of not an archetype exactly, but I, I ended up feeling like this was a retelling of The Wizard of Oz. You have a little girl who gets bumped on the head by a kite, and um, you know there's the domestic quarrel and all that behind it. But anyway, she kind of has a dream. This is this is what I thought was going on. I mean, I really saw the Wizard of Oz in there completely. That's that's so there was a storyline in this case, and the adventure that she has is to go to the Whitney, which is the land of Oz. And, you know, here she is, this little girl, and um, the Whitney Biennial, by the time she grows up, I mean, there was almost an implication that she was a young artist, and, um, and that this work would be very old by the time she got to be, how old are people when they get into the Whitney Biennial now, 22, whatever, I mean, well, she had a few... 12. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not, yeah, not, 14 is... Not just yet. But anyway, this work in the Whitney... Level. The, which is very familiar to us is going to be quite dated by the time her you know by the time she comes of age so when she kind of disappears through the painting at the very end um, I just thought that was her going back to Kansas uh, kind of transformed by her experience 
of of the dream. Lance, did you anything anything good to say about this, or is I, this just indicative? I of a had bit? a great time oh. watching it. Um, I laughed out loud a few times. I uh, I mean, I I thought it was very high quality. Um, I I don't know that it belongs in the gallery. Um, <laughs> You know, but I enjoyed watching it. I, I would love to see them do, you know, Coke commercials. You know, I would love to see them do film titles. Um, I mean, it reminded me a little bit of some of the um, some of the rhythms in it. I thought they had wonderful timing. I thought of Tarantino. I thought of um, Robert Brown, John, who did a lot of the Bond films. I mm-hmm. thought of um, even some Saul and Elaine Bass film titles. Um, I really felt like, you know, people like Tarantino who are very, very clued into... Um, contemporary culture, and uh, he, he, I guess uh, Luis talks a lot about being connected to the Baroque or trying to redo the Baroque through rap, and I think that that's such a stretch that, you know, <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous, but I do think that he has um, a wonderful sense of timing and of kind of, um, for, what he, for what they're doing. Um, I enjoy the hand movements around the, um, the, the walls between the guards, and there's a certain kind of irony, which I thought actually kind of held its own um the evil cheerleaders or whatever they were mm-hmm. was you know always Sirens. always an interesting element to well, any film. I, I certainly <laughs> found them interesting at a certain level but not the, not the level that um, i think is I useful know. to the I don't know. national academy um, or the review panel right? but <laughs> no, I, I, I thought it was I like did think that was the one image yeah i did too but yes. to me good. that was the one image that sort of stood out from was those the women walking down the street with these giant boom boxes i think that was, you know, that's a sort of memorable thing that, that seemed like a discovery. A lot of the other images seemed sort of uh, uh, pastiches of other people's work, and that seemed like where maybe the artist had really come up with something. Well, uh, I haven't watched own. a great deal of MTV, but it seems that whenever I have, there's been very attractive women, scantily dressed, walking down the street with a very uh, nonchalant, angry, don't screw with me, kind of look on their face, rather like the, the four sirens walking Do down. Do you have something against cheerleaders? Uh, um, <laughs> no, not at all. It's the only reason to watch football that I can work out. But um, um, uh, I, I've, like Lance, I kind of had a, 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 you know, a pleasant experience. I sat on that uh, boombox gold <laughs> chair, which is a little uncomfortable because of the knobs and uh, uh, dials, but uh, I wouldn't recommend it for a long-term seating arrangement. Bring but, lubrication. Uh, uh, mm, well, <laughs> wouldn't quite go that far, but uh, uh, bring a Coke, I think, is all, or Coke yes. in the singular, uh, with no article, might be, the, might be the way to go with this. Um, uh, it's obviously not just video, is it, panel, that, that's really, at the moment, seems to be after a, some kind of visual representation of chemical release. Uh, I just came back from Los Angeles, where, where a whole exhibition entitled Ecstasy is devoted to a plethora of artists, uh, including people like uh, Fred Tomaselli and others, uh, for, for whom uh, the pill, uh, pills and uh, tablets and uh, means of getting high or uh, comatosing oneself are the, uh, both the, 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 the subject and the motif and the, and the medium, as it were, um, something in the air? Why, what's, is there something in the? Is there a zeitgeist of um, a kind of nostalgia for the for the um, tune in drop out sixties? What's going on? Or is it just the dreadful times we live in? We we need uh, uh, representations of release in art. Well, in, in Huisper's case, I thought of um, that tradition of magical realism, which is in South American literature. Yeah. So that's sort of what came to mind. 
Yes. Uh, that, that, that that is finding a point of entry um, to sort of mainstream art culture now. I mean, I think it's interesting that it has that root in South American literature. Because um, we're in, you know, a time where it is, you have like abject fear in the sense of the the, the Toyman's show. Uh, I think that we cause a lot of we've caught, we as Americans have caused a tremendous amount of fear to ripple through Europe with what we are doing or what we're capable of underneath this sort of Hollywood brightly colored exterior most of the time. And you know, so it's in a way it's escapism, but it's also special effects. It's magical realism. I think it's very interesting that it enters uh, at this point in time in America. It was, sir, I was really struck after I saw the Gisbert film. I walked across the street and saw Shireen Nishat's new film. Yes. Which um, so we've been talking about that. Was that a more really night and work? day? I mean, it's yes. you know that's not it's not it's very it's this kind of heightened realism. It's not magical realism. It's a very sort of like a kind of classical short story in a way, and or like you know, mid-20th century film, almost silent film. She's using something very stripped down. But it's, it's, uh, it had the kind of power and directness and, and that made Gisbert's film seem sort of redolent of decadent American uh, mm. culture in, in an almost sickening way. Isn't it also interesting, uh, and Lance, I'll bring you in uh, as well here, but isn't it kind of interesting that, um, I mean, Gisbert uh, uh, seems to me the epitome of art world slash music video kind of um, movie making. It's not. It had some of the production values of, uh, of, of the movies uh, of Hollywood, but it certainly doesn't have the narrative compelling quality. And um, it's very interesting to me that Neshat, in this latest sequence of works, is actually somebody who's, who made her initial stamp in the art world with biennales and documentaries as an as a art world video maker, and who's sort of putting herself through the process of learning in public how to make a narrative uh, movie. I mean, that's, that's been her stated goal with these. Uh, a lot of them are based on uh, this one included, um, the latest one included, based on uh, a, a novelist whose name escapes me, but her, her um, uh, Women Without Men is the title of her work. Uh, I don't know if anybody here is well-read enough in contemporary Iranian literature to know who the author of that book is. Um, there you go. I'm not the only one. Do you know? No. Okay. So, um, sorry, I thought I, I thought I saw a hand being raised, but um, I but just throw that out. There's another, the, there's the another issue things. that people have. People, I mean, somebody who's come out of video who says video is not enough, documenters are not enough. I, I need to use this medium to, in the place and in the way where it, it is far more effective than a, uh, an art video with a little girl falling asleep next to a cake. And I need to, you know, get somewhere further with this. Which I think is the exciting thing when that does happen, and mm. when it happens in an interesting way, when the art world can become a springboard for someone to reach out to a larger public. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of artists want to do that, but I think sometimes the sort of desire to do that, it becomes, it's not, it's not coming from, from sort of an inner necessity, it's, it's, it's more the ambition. Yes. You know, and we saw a lot of artists in the late 80s who had been very successful in that decade. Uh -huh. Painters who, who all, it seemed to be de rigueur to, to make a film, to make a feature Fischl, film. Sally, Schnabel. Schnabel. Yeah, I don't know if Fischl made one, but, but Sally, um, Sally, Cindy Schnabel. Sherman made one. Schnabel has made two films. Good ones. And okay. very young. Mm. And, but... Lunch. So Lunch. there's... Mm. Anyway, so there's, there yeah. is this precedent, and I think it's, it's an interesting gamble for an artist to... 
to take. Do you see any traffic lance from uh, healthy traffic back and forth between the mainstream movie world and 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 our our precious art world? Definitely, but I, I don't have uh, MTV either, um, so I don't even have cable. So I'm a little out of that mainstream connection. Um, although I think definitely, definitely, um, pop art has made it. Uh, or kind of set the standard for that, and I think it's been happening ever since. And I think you have something like isn't uh, Murakami featured in the show in L.A.? Yes. Um, which is you know is I don't know what to make of it. I don't have any feeling for for mm. that work, but um, I think that it's there is a connection between the the pop image, the film, and of course everybody wants to blur the boundaries. Always we keep reading about that between one form and another, whether it's film, entertainment, painting, uh, performance, whatever. Um. Great. I think it's a good time now to bring in the audience for a quick uh, roundup on their, their, their take on these last, um, last two shows we looked at and the issues that we raised, and maybe, maybe also the uh, uh, Shirin Neshat, which a couple of us were, were talking about. Um, yeah. Uh, fire away. Who would like to... Why not? Let's start again with... Our esteemed president, uh, Susan Shannon. Well, I did see both, and uh, visually they're very, very different. But the subject is the same. They're about young women in pain, one being abandoned by her father at her birthday, which I'm surprised nobody seemed to pick up, and uh, the other woman being demoralized by being sold into sexual slavery. Whether they got the pain across, I I wasn't convinced. I think Shirin Nishat got closer just because her images are so dark. But that's a very hard thing to convey. So I, I congratulate them both for trying, but one was very serious and aesthetic, and the other was uh, almost sexist to me. Okay, well, we'll be able to work out which is which from that. Okay, <laughs> okay. Um, anyone else, please? Uh, or is there a sense that the, the panel... Yes. One contrast I thought about was the Toyman show and its banality and Jeremy Blake and its hallucinogenic quality, that it couldn't be more a different response to a culture of terror that sort of forces out thought. And I think... Jeremy Blake's response is to go into an introverted thought of his own past. So I thought that was, as opposed to Toyman's, who seems to be above his own introspection. Above his own introspection, that's, that's a poignant, thoughtful phrase. Thank you. Uh, somebody else want to follow up on that? Well, let's go out into the world and not be above our own introspection, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I would, would mention that the next review panel is on December the 2nd, and confirmed speakers, uh, besides myself as uh, moderator, include Eleanor Hartney um, and uh, Mark Stevens. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, could I also use the mic to tell you to... Please exit through the school, which is this door on the, my left at the end. Thank you very much. Enjoy the lovely evening. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Really fantastic. It was really one of the best we've done, I think. Thank you very much. He says that to everybody. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Good. Good.